Hey, good morning, everyone. We're so glad to have you with us this morning for Friends Far and Near. It's a blessing for us to gather in this way and to worship together. My prayer is that this is not just a blessing to you and a help to you, but this is really our chance to, to worship God together. This is our chance to grow. What a, a blessing to know that even in our, our living rooms or wherever you're watching, um, wherever you are, whether locally or around the world, we get a chance to worship God together and we get a chance to grow together. Uh, this morning I'll be continuing our series on stewardship. We've been talking about stewardship for the last few weeks and talking about how it's a really a partnership with God. God who owns and creates all gifts us uh, many things and he, whether it's assets or resources or each other, God gives us these things so that, you know, how we manage them, you know, how we give them back to him actually grows us in our faith. And it, it grows us by making us more like Christ. It grows us by, by growing us in how much we care and, and trust for others. This morning, I'm going to be talking about stewarding our children. And what's fascinating is whenever I, I, I was preparing for this sermon and, and talking about stewarding our children, I was actually reminded about my childhood. Um, for those of you who've been tracking with us for a while or, or who know me personally, you know that we lost my dad when I was six years old uh, during the Liberian Civil War. And what, what, what's, what's, what's interesting about that is when people hear that, maybe for the first time, you know, the first question is always like, what was it like growing up without your dad? And, and it's always a hard question for me to answer because, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's really hard to miss what, what in that case I didn't have or, or don't remember. To me, it's almost akin to if I were to ask you, you know, what, what was it like to, uh, growing up without a billion dollars? You know, you just wouldn't have, at least most of us, I think watching, wouldn't have any capacity to be like, well... I guess it would have been a blessing. It would have been nice. It would have been good, but I just didn't have it. But we did okay. And, and, and I think that same idea is kind of how I always looked at or I, I try to answer that question is that, oh, yeah, it would have been a blessing. It would have been great. It would have been wonderful. But I just, I really can't even imagine. Um, but, but as I thought more about, you know, childhood and, 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 and growing up without my dad this week, I realized it, it's a thing that God teaches me over and over again. That, yeah, I lost my dad at six, but, but I did not grow up without a father because God was my father. God promised to be my father, you know, even the night my dad was killed, you know, I had this dream and, and I feel like the, the, the crux of my dream that I had that night was God saying, I'm going to be there for you. You know, your dad's got to go away, but, but I'm going to be your father now. And what I found in my life, you know, from six to, to now I'm 37, says so 31 years, I, I found God to be my father, to be the one who's faithful, to be the one who's loving, the one who guides me, the one who protects me. But, but more than that, I found God to be home. The place where I rely on for safety, for peace, for comfort, for permanence, if you will. And a, a life, especially when I was younger, that was so transient and, and everything going on. God was my permanence. God was love. God was home. And, and I grew up when, and now, you know, I am a father. And, and one of the things that I've recognized ever since I was younger, um, from losing my own dad to, to, to becoming a father, was that, you know, one of my goals in life was, was to be not just the, the, the best father I can, but for my kids to think I'm the best dad ever. But as I thought about it this week, I thought about, you know, I may not have had a dad growing up, but God became my father. And the story that we're going to look at this morning with Abraham and Isaac and Yahweh up at Moriah, what I think I found is the crux of this story is that for Abraham, God was his father. God was home. God was safety, peace, comfort, permanence. That's why he trusted God. And obviously in the story, if you're familiar with the Bible story, you're familiar with the Bible, you know that, that Isaac 
was the son of Abraham. Abraham was Isaac's father too. So he, Abraham grew up to be a father and eventually got blessed to be a father. And Abraham would have been Isaac's safety. But in the idea of stewarding our children is this trust we put in God that they don't belong to us, that we are not their home, their safety, that God must be. I think that's what we're going to look at as we read through this story this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 22. The entire passage, is it goes from verse 1 to 19, but I'm actually only going to read the first eight verses of Genesis 22. So again, if you want to read the whole story, if you're not as familiar, you just want the whole story, um, read verses 1 to 19. But this morning, I'm just going to stop at verse 8. So starting at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, and I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set off for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried a fire and a knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the many blessings you've gifted us, for the blessing of, uh, of resources or assets, for the blessings of skills, um, gifts, abilities, for the blessings of, of health, for the blessings of relationships, for the blessings of each other. God, we think specifically now as you've also blessed us with children or, or people who are, are under our influence, God, help us to know that ultimately they're your children, that they belong to you. Help us to live in a way that we're not just trying to be all for everything that they need because, God, only you will be all and, and everything that they need. God, help us and teach us how to make children and, and, and those under our influ influence just knowledgeable and knowing and holding on to the simple fact that you are indeed good, that you are indeed faithful, that you are love, that you can be home. In your holy and precious name, amen. So this is this chapter, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. Um, in, in Hebrew, or uh, in Jewish culture, they call this the Akedah. What's fascinating about uh, the, the, the root word that Akad, or Akad, I think, right, um, is it only appears once in the Bible. And, and, and I think part of the reason is that, you know, this is just a different story. You know, Abraham and Isaac are in a culture, in a context where child sacrifice did happen. But what makes it different in the story is that God is asking something of Abraham that I think is very, very crucial, not just to Abraham, but to all of us. And in this Akkad that only applies once, it simply just means the, the binding of Isaac. And, and that's how the, the, the Jewish culture has understood it. In Christianity, you know, we've been wondering about this same binding of Isaac for, for, for thousands of years. And in Islam, they land a little bit differently because some Islamic scholars will say that it wasn't Isaac who was bound, it was really Ishmael who was bound, but they still focus on this 
Akedah. But I think when I, when I look at this story growing up, you know, I had all these questions. It's just like, was God just bloodthirsty? Is God just like, this seems like the impossible. Why would God ask the impossible? Why would God actually ask Abraham to do this? But what I realized as I kept studying this story and looking and looking and looking and looking is that this isn't necessarily a test of God. For God is always good. God is always faithful. God is always love. God is always true. But what this is, is a test of Abraham and his faith. Abraham has to to not just say, I believe in God. I follow God. God, you are Lord. God, you're the one I come under. Abraham actually has to live it. He has to live that God is the most important thing or the important person to him. So when God makes this impossible request, it's amazing to see the faith of Abraham to say, yes, God, I will now go. And Abraham gathers the supplies and he gathers the, 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 the servants and he takes Isaac. He gets the wood, the fire, the knife, and they go on to Moriah. And what's fascinating is that Isaac wasn't just a son. He was the son of promise. Isaac was the son that God promised to do all these great things through Abraham. You have to remember that Abraham and and Sarah were married for a long time. We think when they're introduced to God, Abraham is about 75 and Sarah is about 65. So there's a good chance that they were married for decades before before we're introduced to them in the biblical text. Married for decades, but Sarah was barren. Married for decades, but without children. In a culture that says your progeny, your children, it matters most because one, your children are your inheritance. They're, they don't just, you know, you don't just pass down money to them, but, but everything that goes on in life, it goes to your children. They're all that's important. Everything is important and it relies on them. And you will rely on them to take care of you when you're old. But children was more than that. It was how your name, your legacy went on. And in that culture, they were barren. God meets or God, we're introduced to Abraham at, at about 75. Isaac doesn't show up until Abraham's 100 and, and Sarah's 90. That's 25 years after the initial promise. And if you go through Abraham's story in, the, in Genesis, the wait was hard. You know, twice in Egypt, Abraham was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with me. And, and Sarah's really beautiful. I don't know what these Egyptians are going to do. So you're, you're my sister. Another time, you know, Abraham, even after receiving this promise, was like, well, God, you know, like, I don't really know if you meant that the child would come from me, but I have this servant, Eliezer, and, and he's a faithful person in our culture. You know, when we have someone we trust, they can be our inheritance. So, so you see Abraham time and time again trying to help our God. And, and maybe I would say the most egregious one is Abraham and, and Sarah and what they did to Hagar. Now, again, their culture had a a different maybe sexual morality than we did. And their culture said this was okay. And it's a reminder to us that maybe we shouldn't always be looking to our culture to tell us what's okay. But Abraham and Sarah, in their culture, this was perfectly okay. But Hagar, who had been a servant and a slave, 
is, is a maiden, and Abraham and Sarah try to help out God and say, okay, if this child is supposed to come from Abraham, maybe, maybe it'll come through to, to, to Hagar, and Ishmael is born. So you see, time and time again, the 25 years that they had to wait wasn't an easy 25 years. It wasn't even a, a 25 years full of faith and, and complete trust of God. It was a 25 years where they just tried to help God along. But even after all of that, God still had a son of promise named Isaac. And I love in the chapter before when Isaac is born that the writer of Genesis has this great line in the Hebrew. But in English, it really, it really kind of teaches like this. That, you know, Abraham and Sarah laughed when God said you would have a child. They said, we're too old. This is silly. I can't believe this. We're way past the, the, the bearing childbearing years. They laughed at the thought. But now when Isaac, laughter, when Isaac shows up, they're celebrating because everyone gets to laugh with them and enjoy their joy. So Isaac is this special son. He is the only begotten son. He is the one, the son that Abraham loved. And I want you to hold on to that because that language is important because we get introduced to another special son, another son loved by the father, another only begotten son later on in the biblical text. Now, I pause the chapter 8, but if you read the rest of the story, you know that they, they, they built the altar. You know that, that Isaac goes before his father and says, you know, I, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see the knife, I see the elements. But, but um, um, uh, where is the lamb for the offering? And I stopped right where Abraham says, you know, God himself will provide the lamb. And he lays Isaac on the altar which is a faith exercise. Isaac stays on the altar, which is a faith exercise. He, he raises his, his knife as if to slay Isaac, which is even that, a faith exercise. And then the messenger shows up. And the messenger says, no, Abraham, you've passed the test, if we will. For now I know that you, Yahweh, Yahweh. And I love that in the Hebrew, but in English it basically means, now I know that you fear God. And it's not a fear that like, oh, I'm afraid of you, but it's a fear of reverence. It's essentially the, the messenger says, Abraham, you've passed this test, because now I know Isaac, who's so important to you, does not stop you from fully trusting God. I know that Isaac, who's so important to you, this special son, even him, you are willing to trust God even in this. I know that God is now your Lord. I know that God is the one you trust. I know God is the one you, you put your entire faith in. And Abraham, I know you're looking for a lamb, but maybe that'll come later. Again, maybe pushing us or opening the page to this special son, this lamb of God to come. But what's provided here is a ram. Abraham and Isaac, they take the ram and, and, and they sacrifice the ram and they have the, the offering. And, and then the, Abraham calls it, you know, because God has provided, I will call this place the land or the place that God has provided. And then God makes promise again to Abraham, to Abraham I love you. I know that you fully trust me. And all these promises I gave you, they will be fulfilled. And Isaac was that son through whom God fulfilled the promises. Because Isaac is the father to Jacob. 
Isaac is the grandfather to the 12 tribes of Israel. Isaac is the one through whom Jesus, the Messiah, comes from. And, and whether you look at the, the matrilineal line through, through his mother Mary or, or the patrilineal line through his, his adopted father Joseph, they both come from Isaac. Isaac is the one through whom the Messiah comes from. You know, some scholars, though, have, have speculated that I really think this did a lot of emotional trauma on Isaac because when I look at the story, Abraham and Isaac don't speak again. So obviously Isaac is so traumatized because they don't speak again after the Akedah, after the binding. And for a while I was in that camp, I'm just like, I don't know how this couldn't traumatize you. But then I, I read another scholar who says, well, I mean, outside of their conversation on the Akedah, like, they don't really talk before then either. So I don't know if we can just jump to that conclusion. And so I started rethinking, and what I realized is I don't think Abraham and Isaac had a severed relationship. No, I think that they actually had a cultured relationship, a growth relationship, because I think in a new way, through the Akedah, through the binding, through the, 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 the would-be sacrifice, they both learned what it means to be stewarded as a child of God. Now, I've talked about this a little bit, but, but it's very intentional by God. And it's, it's, almost, it's almost very, it's not just intentional, but it's almost like God was like, I will show you this parallel. You know, Moriah, the binding of Isaac, happens in the same spot where Solomon would build this temple in all his glory, which was the height of, of, of the Old Testament worship. But that same area is also the area where Calvary happened, where Jesus went up to the tree and died on the cross for our sins. In this passage in 20, Genesis 22, Isaac has the wood and, and he puts it up on his shoulder. And that is too a picture of Jesus who, who spread out his hands with, and his shoulder spread out like this and, and died on the cross for our sins. Isaac like Jesus, was the only begotten son. And we know that Ishmael was the son of Abraham, but what this meant was that this was the special son. This was the son of promise. This was the one and only. This was the chosen one. Isaac was substituted, and the ram was provided for the offering. But remember Jesus' cousin, who he grew up with, when he said, he saw Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb for the offering. God tested Abraham with the binding of Isaac. But what a blessing that this is just a small picture, because God saved us, not with the binding of Jesus, but through the actual sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. God asked Abraham to do something to see if he really trusts him. Yet God gave up his son because he really loved us. When we think about stewarding our children, I think this is such a good story because it reminds us that our kids are not meant to be the centers of our universe. It reminds us that as good and as, as great as we can be as parents, they ultimately belong to God. It reminds us that if God is God and God is Lord, our job is to trust God in everything. And I think there's, there's, there needs to be almost some relearning about this passage. The one thing we have to always remind ourselves going to the Akedah, going to this binding, is to remind, remind ourselves that, that God is not a bloodthirsty God. And we can do this kind of easily as Christians because we'll say, well, well Jesus is the, is the full embodiment of who God is. And, and Jesus isn't a God who's bloodthirsty. In fact, Jesus is a God who gives up himself, who dies on the tree, who sacrifices for us. 
But Abraham also didn't believe God was bloodthirsty. Because remember, Abraham, after, you know, the sin of Sodom came out and, and God is going to send messengers to destroy the city. And Abraham is the one who, who pleads to God's grace. And in one of the most fascinating passages in all of Scripture, it's not really a debate, but it's really a prayer and a pleading. And Abraham starts off with 50 and just like, God, I know they're sinful. I know they've turned from you. But if there's 50 righteous people, can't you save them? And God goes down from 50. Abraham works him all the way down to 10. God is not a bloodthirsty God. Abraham knew God as a God of grace. But this is also not a story about a neglectful father. This is not a story about, about a bad father. Because you see, Abraham, at least with Isaac and in this, Isaac may have trusted Abraham the most at that point. And I think you can see it in Isaac actually listening to his father and laying on the altar. He had his ultimate trust at that point in his father. You know, I'm 37 years old. There's not scholars who think Isaac was 37 at the time of this, right? And I really think that if Isaac didn't fully trust his father, he could have just got up and ran. But he did not. The reason he did not was because his father was his home. And I think, though, the point of this story is that no matter how loved we are, how appreciative we are of our parents or our mentors and those who, who, who have helped us be the people we are, they are not meant to be our home. They are not meant to be our all in all. And I think all of us have to learn the simple lesson that it is God we must ultimately trust and God alone. So Abraham is not neglectful here. Abraham is obedient and trusting God. And I think Isaac's trust in Abraham, it grows and it matures into a fuller trust of God. You see, this is actually a story of that faith in God. You know, the writer of Hebrews says it like this. Abraham, you know, may not know how exactly, but Abraham so trusted God that he felt that if Isaac were to die as a sacrifice, God, because of his promises, would resurrect him. And for a while, that got me through this story. I'm like, well, yeah, Abraham just had trust. You know, if Isaac died, God would resurrect him. But if you go back to the actual story, <laughs> there's some clues that Abraham wasn't going to kill his son. You know, if you go back to the story in the very, very beginning, actually, when Abraham goes to the servants after they, they, they load up and they get to Moriah, what does Abraham say to the servants? Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham had complete faith in God, complete trust in God that whatever was going to happen, him and Isaac would return. To me then, that story of faith is really a story of stewardship. And when I hold on to this story, when I read this story, when I remember this story, I see stewardship happening in four ways. Yes, God blesses us with children. And they teach us and reteach us wonder. They teach us and reteach us about creation, about, 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 about God. And they teach us and reteach us about, about just amazement, about trust, about faith. But if we're going to steward our children like Abraham, we must know that they belong to God and not necessarily us. That they are God's children and not simply our own. God blesses us with children, yes. 
But if we're going to steward them, we must adopt a mindset and an everyday mindset of saying, God, they are yours. And what's harder for some of us is to even hold on to this idea that, God, you love them more than I could possibly ever love them. God blesses us with children, but they are his. The second thing I think is really, really important is that God desires to be and must always be our home. And that's a lesson we got to teach our children. That God is faithful, loving, guiding, protecting. God is home. He's the safety. He's the peace. He's the permanence. He's our comfort. God desires to be our home, and by that, God also desires to be our Lord, meaning our full and complete trust must remain in God. The third thing I think if we're going to steward our children, you know, yes, they belong to God. Yes, you know, he, God must be our home. But God calls us to teach and model our faith to our children and those under our influence. God calls us to teach and model our faith and all those under our influence. Abraham goes up to Moriah with faith. Abraham builds that altar with faith. Abraham lays Isaac on that altar with faith. Isaac sees the faith of his father, sees a father who so trusts God that he was willing to do this impossible but Isaac is able to learn what Abraham relearned, that God always fulfills his promises and that our God will always provide. It is our duty as, as stewards of, of, of children and people under our influence to teach and model our faith. And then the last way of stewardship is that God is God alone. God is Lord. And you have to hear me on this and not our children. There's so many of us who I think make the mistake that you see a lot of these parents make in Genesis, where they pick favorites, you know? You can make a good argument that Isaac, because he was the son of promise, was the favorite over Ishmael in the treatment. You can make, uh, you don't have to go that even deeper to see that Jacob and Esau were favorites of the mom and the dad. You see this favoritism playing out, and it never ends well. But I think even deeper than that, it starts off with us wanting the best and, and, and only wanting the best. But I think this story is a reminder to all of us that God should be the center of our universe, not our children. That God should be the one we're listening to for leading, not our children. That our children are meant to be stewarded and grown and grown to, to, to love God and to know God and to grow in God. They are not meant to be worshipped by us. You know, when I thought about stewarding our children or those under our influence, I thought about these four things. And I'm going to restate them in a question to hopefully move us on as we wrap up this service. The first question is simply this. How are we teaching? How are you teaching those under your influence, your children? How are you teaching that, yes, you're a blessing to me, but you belong to God? How are we teaching them that, yes, they're a blessing? Because I think most parents do a good job of telling their kids they're a blessing. But how do we start them off from the time they're born to the time they walk and run to the time they leave the house, that they belong to God, that he's the holder of their fate, 
that he's the one who loves them, that he's the one who will always be there for them. How are we teaching that they belong to God? Because that's one way you can steward your children. The second way, I said God is their home. So how are we teaching that God is their home? There's a, there's a, 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 a Somali po poet who was born in Kenya who was raised in the UK and I think now lives in LA. Hope you followed all that, right? Um, her name is Warsan Shire, and, and she's brilliant. And she has this poem that, that just still haunts me every single time I read it or I hear it or I, or I come across a quote from it. And then the poem is actually called Home. And in this poem, and the reason I think I resonate so deeply with it is because she paints a picture of what it's like to be a refugee and an immigrant who's running from home, who's running for their lives, who's running and going to strange lands as, as a means of survival. And I always resonated with that because I'm like, if you want to understand what it means to, to leave your land, which I can relate to as a child of civil war, then you read this poem. But there's a line in there, maybe three lines, a little, a little short paragraph that has always stuck with me when I think about this poem. And she says it like this. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And her point is that no one makes the decision to leave home unless even the uncertainty is more safe. And in a new way, I understood the binding of Isaac when God gave me that thought. Isaac isn't placed on that altar. Abraham doesn't place Isaac on that altar unless not trusting God is scarier than trusting God. For worse than Shire, the poem says, no one puts their children on a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And I think if we want to understand this, we have to understand that for Abraham, I am not going to put my son on this altar unless not trusting God is the option. It's harder for me to not trust God and not listen to God than to actually trust God even in this. And that brings us to this third point of how are we modeling our faith? Do your children know your testimony? You know, a lot of times we talk about it's important for us to tell stories, right? Um, the church should tell stories, or, or we, should, we learn by stories. But, but I think there's a simple question to ask this week is, is whether your children are five or, or 50, you know? Do your children know your testimony? Do they know your story of faith? Do they know where God has grown you? Do they know what God has shown you? Do they know what God has done in your life? Because you can assume they know, but there's a good chance they weren't there when some of these things were happening. And if you want to teach and model your faith, yes, it's about following God, but it's also about telling your story. Abraham modeled his faith. We can model our faith. And I think one of the ways we can do that is to simply tell our story and our journey. And then this last way 
to steward our children after we teach them that they belong to God and not us or not even this world. After we tell them that God can be their home because as scary as the unknown is, trusting God is always less scary because God is faithful, good, and true. After we model our faith and, and teach them and tell them our testimony, maybe the last way and maybe the best way we can steward our children is simply for them to forever know that God is Lord. God alone is Lord. It is God who's worthy of our faith. It's God who's worthy of our trust. It's God who's worthy of our allegiance. And even in the impossible asks, even on the altars that we need to crucify, maybe the good things in this life, in all things, if we're willing to trust God, even in the hard things, even in the impossible things, this God who is Lord will reveal himself to be faithful, to be grace, to be mercy, to be compassion, to be good, to be love, to be ours. That's how we steward our children, telling them they belong to God and not us. They belong to Jesus and not the world. Showing them that God is their home, that trusting him, even in the impossible or the unknown, is always the best choice. By modeling our faith and teaching them our testimony, but by letting them forever know that God is God alone. God bless you all.